0: Hey, before we get into this episode, I just wanted to offer a content warning because we talk about sexual assault and abuse, and we share some truly inspiring stories. But I get it if this episode is not for you and just wanted to give you a warning. Thank you.
1: And I want to just say that there are no accidents. There's a reason why we're here. And there are, for you who are the listener, there is not an accident for you either that you're here listening to us. Oh,
0: Okay, today we are here with Maggie Cook on the Gravity Podcast. Maggie, whose birth name is Magdalena de la Cruz, Cook Garcia, is a Latino businesswoman who was born in an orphanage in Mexico. She grew up in poverty along with 68 brothers and sisters. She missed her opportunity to play basketball for the Mexican national team because she broke her collarbone. Shortly after... She immigrated to the U.S. on a basketball scholarship at the University of Charleston. She created Maggie's All Natural Fresh Salsa and Dips, a company that grew into a multi-million dollar business within four years and distributed products across 38 states to major supermarkets such as Walmart, Sam's Club, Whole Foods, and many more. At the height of her success in 2015, Maggie's Salsa sold to Campbell's Soup. Shortly after, she went back to Mexico and rescued 31 orphaned children from a drug cartel. Maggie is the author of the book, Mindful Success, How to Use Your Mind to Transform Your Life. In 2019, she began working with the AOF Hollywood Dreams International Film Festival to make a feature film about her story. We are here today with Maggie Cook on the Gravity Podcast. Maggie, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you too. I enjoyed um, being with you and John uh, and, and kind of seeing what you guys are up to and you know, learning just a little bit about how rich of a life you've had and how beautiful uh, and challenging your journey's been. And so I'm really excited to have a chance to hear the full story and, and share it with our audience.
1: Sounds wonderful.
0: Yeah, so let's start at the beginning. Let's talk a little bit about kind of your early childhood. I know that it starts off kind of very uh, interesting right for, right from the beginning. So why don't you go ahead and share that part of your your journey?
1: Well, definitely not normal. <laughs> you know, a lot of us it's always often talk about how we didn't have a normal childhood, but just imagine yourself living in a compound in a third world country. In an orphanage, basically, with uh, over two hundred kids at the same time living there in dorms, and then having sixty eight brothers and sisters that all were adopted and i'm I'm one of the kids that were adopted, and then just growing up with in a, such a, an environment with poverty and lots of uh, trauma that we experienced, and you know hunger. Being hungry for two to three weeks at a time, and then just being creative and, and trying to survive and trying to do things to to feel better. I mean, I, I as a result, I became a hunter. I was hunting prey with my brothers out of trees at night with nets and spotlights, and we use knives. As a matter of fact, I still have my original knife I used to hunt with. Wow! This thing
0: wow. right here. <laughs> well, okay, let me let me just hop in for a second.
1: Yes. Tell me, tell me the
0: ages that we're talking about that you're actually in the orphanage.
1: Oh gosh, I mean, we had kids that came in. At, we had we had a, a mother that gave birth to a baby, uh, and I was I was eleven years old and. My my caregiver, he was a doctor. He put me as the baby catcher, which was the horrible experience. Oh my gosh! (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, and And, I guess I meant you know your age. So you you were from from zero to right to how old? How old were you when you left the orphanage? Eighteen. Eighteen. So you spent your entire young uh, childhood and young adult life in the orphanage, and you know. Incredible, really. I mean, now I just kind of like have to pause for a second to think about that because, you know, it, it it had to be such a traumatic experience. I mean, you just started to allude to one story that by itself would be mind-blowingly, you know, difficult and challenging for uh, anybody, let alone a young person, an 11-year-old. I mean, tell me a little bit about kind of that trauma? What what was it actually like at the time? Not really even so much, we can talk about it in hindsight, but what was it like at the time for you to really experience uh, being in that that world?
1: Well, there's a lot of kids, so there's only two caregivers. And when I was little, I was paired up with an adult. And when I was an adult, I was paired up with a little kid. So and then and in essence, we grew ourselves up And because there was only two caregivers, there are so many things that happened that shouldn't have happened to kids, uh, including things like sexual abuse and uh, physical abuse, mental abuse, and hunger. And I still like to say that they, they try to do the best that they could with what they had, but I still think that it was just not a normal situation to have a place with so many kids, and only two people, to two caregivers.
0: And, and what was considered to be an adult? I mean, as you said, you left at 18. So how old were you when you started to care or how old were your caregivers?
1: Well, I was starting to care for young kids when I was 11 or 12 years old. So I yeah. was paired up with like, you know, two or three year olds or, you know, even a little bit older than that.
0: Yeah. I mean, just, just a kid yourself, you know, I mean, I, I've got a, 14 year old you know i mean not not a time where you're supposed to have to be caring for other people like that and so i could see how that could be just fraught with all kinds of like you said you know it's really an interesting perspective to say that you know they did the best they could because when you're asking 11 and 12 year olds to be adults you know things aren't going to go that well
1: uh, yes.
0: yeah mm-hmm. And, and so for you, I, I'm, I'm assuming that like, you know, maybe that's all you knew. You know, you were born into it. You didn't know anything else. Was, is that true? Did that become kind of like your view of the world? Or was there some sense that this wasn't right, that, that there, there was a, a better way? And tell me a little bit more about kind of, you know, what your feelings or, or thinking was of that experience as you were having it.
1: Well, I certainly didn't know anything outside of the bar orphans. and but we did have opportunities to travel to the u s specifically because our caregivers would uh, come up this way to stop at different locations and raise funds for the orphanage. So, I did kind of get to see a little bit outside of the world in America, really, not necessarily even Mexico. Uh, but it, it was it was certainly, you know, the whole my whole lifetime there. Was not normal, and um, and it was just one of those situations where I just had hope for something better. I always hope for something better, and I I remember I was so young, and I used to use my mind to to visualize and think myself something else, like a superhero or somebody that had overcome, like a successful woman. I would see myself dressed in these clothes with high heels and lo- and long hair, and and I think it came about because we were watching a movie, and we only had like. To choose from three movies that we watch over and over again and I saw uh, a leading role female powerful woman and I think I kind of kind of glued to that and said I want to be like that someday when I grow up and I did these things i I I, pl- I focused with my mind and really tried to to see myself like I like I am today literally so I'm, I've become a manifestation of what I've visualized even since then.
0: Mm. and and what a powerful thing to. Imagine, you know, I'm looking at you right now, you know, dressed in the clothes that you you might have imagined yourself in, you know, living the life that maybe you fantasized about the that you saw on 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 TV, you know, on, on the big screen, and 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 that you simply just hoped existed. You know, I'm 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 struck by that, and like the idea of um, hope. You know it what was the initial spark for hope just um, something that was kind of in your body, in your in your kind of like experience that maybe it existed, or did you was it in part because you were seeing it as you traveled, you know, the movie then you know, gives you a real real imagery for it. but kind of where where did that hope come from?
1: Well, it came from number one, I didn't want to suffer anymore. I wanted a better life, and number two, uh, aside from hope, I became sort of like a tomboy, like a tough person, because I didn't want anybody to to hurt me, and so I became this strong person. That most of my my sisters got uh, raped, right, and I almost got raped, but I broke the guy's nose with my hands, and this is when I was a little girl, and so I became. This character, a stronger character, to say you're not going to mess with me, and so it was a combination of the two. And it's a lot of uh, a lot of this I had to deal with later in life to kind of balance my femininity and my masculinity, because I no longer have to be there. It's to suffer, and so when that changes, I just felt felt like I needed to be a certain way in order to survive and not being uh, not being put down or taken advantage or, or abused. Uh, to an extent that I would be irreparable. But a lot of the people that I grew up with, most of them, and that not, well, I'm not sure if most of them, but they, some of them ended up in prison or in gangs or in prostitution. And, um, but I'm so grateful and thankful that I have this mentality that, you know, even now people ask me, how come you're not in prison or doing drugs? You know, how did you do it? And it's just because I had this mindset of, I want to end my suffering. I have hope and I'm I'm strong. And my mm-hmm. internal was, I'm so weak. And my external was like, I'm the strong person that I don't want to let anybody mess with me, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and do you think that that came from the experience that you had and, and kind of what you were seeing around you and that you then kind of used your mind and and body to kind of instinctually almost choose, I don't want to suffer, I'm going to be strong? Or do you feel like in some part that's like a gift um, that that came to you from, I don't know what you believe, you know, but from some sort of higher power?
1: I think a little bit of both. I think there's an instance when I was probably eight years old and my caregiver, uh, my dad came out of the clinic and he was taking care of the poor. He was a doctor every Sunday. He would open the doors and he came to me and says, do you see those people there? And it was a mom with two kids and they had no shoes. They had really thin hair and really bad clothes. He says, you know how I can tell they're really poor? And I said, how? And he explained to me and he kind of grabbed my head and he says, I I never want any any one of you guys to be to that extent, to suffer to that extent of poverty and not having anything, uh, like literally nothing. And so he went over and gave them some money for tacos. And then I remember just looking up to the sky and, and thinking like as if I was hearing or also speaking something at the same time saying, I'm going to be some somebody, something that I'm gonna come out of here and I'm going to show that anybody that's in, in a situation like ours that we can make it through.
0: Wow. Incredible, and so it's interesting because even with all the abuse and all the neglect and all the trauma, you know that there was somebody there that was still saying, you know, with with an intention of having you not—I don't know, maybe maybe you know—have some level of success, even if it was just the kind of most minimal level of having basic needs. Um, There was somebody there that still was thinking about that at all, like. How was how that to have kind of somebody almost expressing some concern and care for you? And yet, you know, all the kind of, um, you know, abuse that was happening at the same time.
1: Yes. And that's really, you know, something that because he, there were just two of them, two caregivers, and they couldn't really take care of all of us. And one of the things that we struggled a lot with, and she would tell him, stop giving the money away. I don't care if you give it to the poor because he felt like he needed to help people, the poor, because he was a doctor. But he ended up giving all the money away to them before he would feed us. And so that was one of the things that they fought about a lot. And actually every Thursday, he would get a package from Morelia, a city that was about two hours away. And sometimes he would get a thousand bucks and you could tell because he was so happy he was jumping. And sometimes he would just give it all away and he was sad, depressed. And that's some, some sort of like um, money issue that I had with seeing him, how he was reacting to money that I had to fix mm-hmm. later on in life, strains of that. But the suffering part of it is just imagine having two caregivers, two parents with all these kids. They're impossible to watch for and they will do things, things happen. Um, and just to make it clear, I am one of eight biological kids of theirs. Okay. But we suffered more because we, I heard him telling her one day when I walked into the kitchen not to pay attention to us because he was afraid that the other kids who were adopted would run away or would feel less because we were being. And so that's why I believe that we're so close, the eight of us to this day, because yeah. we suffered like that. And Things happen where we would get punished even worse because they we the, the other kids were believed more than we were on anything, even if we didn't do anything. So that was very traumatic for for us.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. I, I'm glad you shared that. I've never actually thought of that or heard that before, where you were actually the biological child of the the caregivers. And so there is a bit of a distinction there in that, you know, you actually know your birth parents and your siblings, um, and, and how they then treated you. And in your case, in some ways worse to make sure that people felt equal. Um, what, what a, a, a interesting twist on it. I mean, and, and and I'm also kind of curious, like how was that dynamic with the other sixty brothers and sisters? I mean, was there a real sense that there was a, a difference between you and 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 how did that end up?
1: I don't think there was a sense of uh, them feeling different. I didn't feel that. I do remember one of my brothers who in, in a Christmas time said something about us, the biological kids, and he got severely punished for that. Because you said it in front of the other kids, it, as far as treatment, it was definitely not equal. But as far as me feeling any more or any less, it was never. There was never a question in my mind that we were just equal. Mm-hmm. But it was just the by the fact that we suffered more that I had sort of some kind of uh, resentment towards that those ac- actions.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maggie, you know, you you I know your story, and and I'm anxious to kind of get into kind of how you. Immigrated to the U.S. and and kind of the role basketball played. I, I want to talk about. I mean, there's a lot to talk about, you know, um, from there. But before we do that, I, I'm curious. You know, now, kind of looking back, you mentioned, you know, the the impacts that um, this this experience, this first 18 years of your life, really had on you as you moved into your journey. You know, you talked a little bit about. Um, kind of how you viewed money. You talked a little bit about how you viewed um, kind of your um, femininity and needing to kind of balance out um, that masculine side. You, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of either those or other. You know, kind of trauma that you really experienced. You know, kind of what was formed, uh, what was molded, programmed that that you've had to unpack. And, and fix or change, um, shift, I don't know what the right language is, and, uh, and how? How
1: did you do it? The biggest one that I can tell you is I would always tell myself love doesn't exist. And that's big. And I had to work through that because love does exist. <laughs> and it's everything we are and all we are. And it empowers us to be even greater. The other thing that was huge for me was my caregivers were non-denominational Christians, and so we were pre- preached the Bible. I know I know the Bible front and back basically. And one of the things that I that made an impact in my life um, that I remember was that even if you think about thought that you're going to hell, and I remember sitting in my room one day at the orphanage where. The bunk beds were, and I was thinking, I'm going to be there for five minutes not to think a bad thought. And then I thought one, and I was like, I'm going to hell. And so it was for me impossible to say that I would be saved even after life. That to me was very impacting because I I would, would think, how how is this possible? And then I grew up and I thought and I felt that something was off, something was not right. About the religion, and I became to understand how God is, what God is, and I became a minister actually with the Unity Movement, which is all accepting. And I had to unpack all those things that happened. The biggest thing that I would say that I had to struggle the most is when I came out to my parents as gay. Mm-hmm. That's when you say all hell really broke loose, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how so old were you when you did that? Oh, I. I was 21 years old. I was in college and mm-hmm. I was very sad and depressed because I knew who I was, but I hated myself and I hated other gay people and I was so mean to them. And I finally accepted myself one day and I went out to all these people and I said, I'm so sorry for being this way with you. It's because of this. Mm-hmm. Then I was so happy. And then uh, my basketball coach noticed that I was different and t- too happy and told my, called my parents, my dad. And said, there's something wrong with Maggie. I think she's doing drugs. Come and talk to her. So he flies the next day and I'm there. And he asked me what's going on. And I said, I'm gay. And oh my gosh, um, I got beat up so bad with his fists. Wow. took a Bible. He took me to the woods and I thought I was going to die. He took me to this mountain in West Virginia where he grew up. And I remember there were trees, but there's just a mount, no trees at the top. And he had his Bible and he just started beating me with the Bible. And I remember seeing the pages like come off of it. And then I just started screaming, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. Like I'm not gay anymore. Mm -hmm. And then he stopped and he went back thinking that I had changed or whatever. But
0: Hmm. wow, even at 21, I mean, still, you know, getting um, abused Boy, you know, that makes me uh, sad to hear that, that you had to experience that. I, I, I know that, you know, you've used your experience for you, but I just uh, don't believe anybody should have to have that experience and it makes me sad to hear that. But I, I appreciate you sharing it. And, and I'm really curious about kind of the first thing that you said about love, because you know to to hear that story and this entire story, and to hear that you 've arrived at believing uh, in love and and I 'm guessing that includes loving yourself, which might have been maybe the hardest thing to do. sometimes it feels like that is the hardest thing to do, especially um, if there's you know been abuse uh, involved. Tell me, how did you arrive at that, Maggie? How did, you, how did you come to that belief?
1: Well, it was certainly a development over time. And it, it happened started happening when I was no longer there, when I was in college. And I started to see how the world was actually different and there was less suffering. And then I started seeing myself and my body and I didn't accept my body. And then I started uh, just meditating. And feeling this joy and this inner happiness and thinking about light and light and love and how it's so powerful that that if we allow it to come in and I always meditate, have meditated from light coming in from the top of my head into my body, down through my feet. How if we just envelop in this life, light also emanates from us and it actually changes us when it changes us, we begin to change the, the the people, the places, the circumstances around us because now they're, they're seeing us differently. Now the energy that we're putting out, we're attracting different types of people, we're attract, attracting different types of circumstances. And there's a magnetism in there that I lived and that I have experienced and that I later read in books. But just simply the fact of still having, I believe I still had that light growing up because my mind was super focused on peace and quiet. I mean, I I built a little cave on the side of a canyon that nobody could find and I would go there and I would be there by myself and meditate, not knowing what that meant. But because of that, I think maybe that perhaps kept my mentality where it was. But seeing the power of that and harnessing that and then really discovering what love really is and the feeling about that, I would consider that I've discovered love to be that which it is the equivalent of what we so-called God. But even the word love or the word God is just a named name that we humans have given it to something that has such an amazing power and impact in individuals and spiritual beings that's why i say that which we call god or love because it's there's so much more than that it's much bigger than that and bigger than we can comprehend and that's really the power that the 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 life that breathes through me now and it's really the what what gets me going what keeps me going and now i know that I, there's a reason why i'm here there's a purpose for me being here in this time and that all of my experiences that i've lived were blessings and I thanked my caregivers for every single thing that I went through because now I can say I can talk about them and say I didn't turn out bad I didn't turn out drugs or in jail or prostitution I was able to turn my life around and if there's anybody out there that's struggling and going through some of these things that they can also make it through Yeah.
0: I I think what you just said, you just said, you know, so eloquently is um, really exactly my worldview. You know, maybe that's why I feel, uh, you know, connected to you is that we share that same belief. Um, The the love, God, the language, the, the, you know, what I think is like a an energy that's you know kind of intelligent beyond our comprehension, you know the way that that um, gives us purpose, you know that we are that we are that's how we are 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 born. That's why we are here. Um, everything you just said, and 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 especially, and I think this is really important to highlight. I I really firmly believe that everything is happening for our benefit. And I say that, um, from a, a, a life of, of, you know, challenge, but privilege. Um, and, um, you know, I've got my own stories, you know, and, and, um, I've been able to look at those in a really positive light, but to hear your story, to hear you say that you have gratitude For that experience, that you have gratitude for those caregivers to to hear that you have seen and experienced, and this is not just like a a mind trick, right? This is not like a rationalization or like a reframe. This is actually your your belief, your, your experience is that you are thankful for what you've been given because it has brought you to exactly who you are and to where you are today. That that to me is is really important. I think for people to hear and and brings me a lot of uh, joy. Uh, you know, in 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 kind of contrast to the sadness that you know I just felt hearing your story.
1: Absolutely, it's the the greatest gift, and I you know I. I I think if I could phone him in heaven right now because he passed, I will tell him, uh you know, thank you for everything that you did to me. Thank you for the beat ups for everything because you allowed me to be the person that I am today and um and not in I'm not saying it in a resentful way, I'm actually happy about that because the the um, sadder my story, the greater the impact that I can do That's <laughs> it's crazy as it sounds uh because i can relate to so many people when i coach people there, in and uh, personally or in business there's always i've never come across one single person that i cannot relate to and it's mm-hmm. because of my experiences and that that to me is the greatest treasure that i have
0: yeah it's like a yeah because you have a a level of compassion of empathy that's really in the experience it's not something that maybe you could really understand or access in that depth if you did not have that experience. And, you know, I think it's, um, it's really, uh, it's really interesting. You know, I, I think sometimes people might say, oh, how can you believe in God? Or how can you believe in something of, you know, higher power, whatever, when, when, that kind of cruelty, cruelty happens, but, you know, would somebody, what kind of God would treat a child like that? You know, what kind of God would, right. Well, it, it's an interesting and, and a little bit of a kind of slippery slope, you know, but I'll just say, you know, cause I know that, that you agree that, that, you know, for me, sometimes the challenge, no matter how hard or um unfair it might appear really does serve you in a way that maybe it it had to be to to really get the benefit you know Absolutely. and and i you know people might not agree with that but you know i i feel like that's true and and it's a lot um more important that you feel it's true because of your experience i don't want to tell somebody else who's been Beaten and and you know abandoned and and you know uh, left and and traumatized like you have raped right I don't want to tell them how to how to view it or that it's like happening for their benefit I can't do that I can't because that's not true for everybody but it is true for you yes and and that's pretty uh, I think important for people to know mm-hmm. yeah and, and tell me I, I know uh, let's shift a little bit to to kind of your your life in the U.S. as you do start to move on. You talked about playing basketball and coming out and starting to kind of come into this, um, you know, new life. Talk a little bit about that, you know, kind of what what you are starting to grow into as you start to move forward with your life.
1: So and when I was in junior high, in high school, I was always thinking about what can I do to come out of this place that can give me a an edge and I found basketball. I saw Michael Jordan play in a little black and white TV in school. And I asked the principal if I could come and watch it every day when I was on break. And he said yes. So I started to practice basketball with a blindfold. And I, had a, I remember I had a, a brother who had spinal bifida. He was adopted. We found him in, in a dumpster. So I carried him wherever I went. And um, he started helping me to where to go with the basketball turn right, left. When I was had the blindfold, And I was just doing that and visualizing all these people coming at me. And so I became so good that when I was in high school, we won all the championships and the Mexican national team from Mexico city came and saw me play. They recruited me (laughs) and I was like, yes, my ticket out. And I uh, waited for three months. I went up to see them. I got their letter, their admission letter. I still have that letter and waited for three months in the orphanage and we didn't get a call. And then one day, uh, My caregivers bring a football, American football, and I started to play with my brothers. And that day I broke my collarbone and I went to my caregiver and he squeezed my shoulders backwards to see what was going on. And he said, your dreams are over because I broke my collarbone. Three days later, we got a call from the Mexican national team and I couldn't go. And so, but I, I cried. But I chose to believe that that wasn't the end. For some reason, I was like, like had my fists on and I said, this is not the end. There's got to be something else, something better. Four four or five months later, my caregivers took a bus to the United States to tour for to get financial um, aid for the orphanage. And we stopped at a picnic that we got invited in West Virginia. And there was a basketball court. And my brothers and I started to play. And there happened to be the coach of the University of of Charleston and she saw me play and she told my caregiver, I want her to come play for me on a scholarship. And that's the only reason I came here. And I say, I would like to say that if I would have believed my caregiver who was a doctor and I wouldn't have played that day, I wouldn't be speaking with you today. Mm -hmm. Amazing. my journey through college was amazing. I played sports on scholarships. I was able to pay my education. I played basketball, soccer, I rode crew and I ran track. And I didn't know any English coming here. So it was really challenging at first, but then I got really better at it. Uh, keeping in mind that university Harley had it, well, had nobody to spoke Spanish. So I had to develop my English really good. And when I was in college, I um, used to make this salsa Uh, like a fresh fresh pico de gallo salsa, and all my friends loved it. And they loved it so much, they told my teachers, and then my teachers had me to bring it to class. And so I did, and everybody loved it. And when I graduated college, I couldn't find a job. My degree was interior design. And there was only two firms back then in West Virginia, and I couldn't get hired. So I started living out of my car in the winter, and it was so cold, and I would turn on the engine on high heat, you know, And then I would get warm and then I would get cold and then I would turn it back on. And that's how I... And then one day, my there's a lot of hills in West Virginia. I, I uh, was going up a hill and my engine blew up. There's fire coming out of the front hood. And I just picked up my bags and started walking. And I lived for a little while between the streets and the woods. But I didn't really know I was homeless because I lived in the woods in Mexico. And that's how I grew up until somebody found me on the street because I was walking by with my bags and they said, what are you doing? I, I can't believe you're homeless. Let me get you a place to stay. And this was one of the cooks at the University of Charleston. And she got me a, a dorm for the rest of the time that, that they, were, they were that they were able to because the school was out. And uh, during that time, when I came out of homelessness, well, when I was homeless, I came to the realization that I was actually okay I didn't have anything to worry about. I didn't have bills. I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything but just me and all that is. So I had a sense of peace. And I think when that sense of peace came through, everything started happening to me, mm. for me. Wow. And, wow. Um, and a couple of uh, weeks later, some friends that I had from college entered me into a salsa contest for the whole state of West Virginia. Wow. Something that I didn't even know about.
0: You didn't even know they were doing it?
1: No. Yeah. And I, I went to that contest and it was Mexican themed and everybody came in. There, I think there was 15 contestants and everybody brought their uh, cooked jarred salsas and I brought a pico de gallo, fresh or salsa, pulled the competition out of the water. I won by a unanimous vote first place and everybody was at my table. Where do you sell this stuff? Where can we get it? And I'm like, uh, I didn't even know what to say because I was homeless. Well, I just came out of homelessness and I didn't have any money. And at that competition, there was a man that was dressed in a suit and he kept looking at me. That energy, when somebody's really looking at you piercingly, you can feel them. He came uh, towards me after the people kind of died down. He said, I I can see something in you. I see that you have a fire and a passion because you really love this stuff. And I've been seeing you. I'm going to do something for you. He said, I'm going to give you something with one condition that someday when you're able to, you can pay it forward. And I was like, what is this man's about to do? Like, I have no idea who he is. Mm -hmm. And he pulled out his wallet and he gave me $800. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started Maggie Salsa.
0: Wow. Who was he?
1: I have no idea. You still don't know. I have no idea.
0: Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, I mean, really, again, kind of, um, I'm sitting here kind of in awe, listening to you, the, the experience of you ending up homeless, the kind of, immediate sadness i got that you didn't even know that that's that's what that was because that's how you grew up and then you know the the mindset of realizing you're okay in fact you were at peace you had no bills you had nothing to worry about no obligation that in some way there was a lot of peace you know i think that's also kind of an important thing to highlight that you know sometimes it's not the things that we think are going to make us happy, you know. Sometimes a less is is a lot more. Um, you know, obviously, you know, nobody wants to be homeless, but you know, just the opportunity that that provided you to have that learning, and then you know, these angels that are entering you into the competition, the man that's giving you the the cash, um, and and you're you're off and running. Talk a little bit about. Maggie's salsa and kind of the the journey that
1: that was. So I, I started Maggie's salsa. Didn't know anything about business. I just started Googling, and that's how really I built my business. Because I would call people who had salsa companies or people in business, and nobody would help me. So I just kind of took it on, and I knew there was it was something special because there was nothing like it back then, and. Uh, I literally designed everything, my website, my container, product labels, my uh, I got my truck driver's license, everything. And initially, it was so hard because nobody knew what the product was. And the only place that I had it uh, available was that market where the competition went it happened because they tried it and they're like, oh my gosh, we want your products. Aside from that, I decided I'm going to sit down one day and I had this long list list of stores to call from the smallest to the largest in my mind. And I started calling, and and I remember it was so scary because I'd never just picked up the phone and made calls. And I made, uh, I got 90 rejections that day, and it felt awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I put the list down, and I said, okay, I just need to, you know, think about how can I approach this differently because nobody knows what the product is, nobody's tried it. And at that time, I had a partner that I was living with, and. And she says, what are you doing? You're not making any money. You should just get a job. you know. And I just got put down a lot, but I knew, I knew that I had something, so I kept trying. And I decided the next day that I was going to take that list and turn it upside down. And at the very top of that list, which was uh, the largest supermarket in my mind at the time was the Whole Foods Markets, uh, which is the largest organic retailer in the United States. And my product was fresh and natural. So I called him and I said, hey, my name is Maria Magdalena de la Cruz Garcia. I have an awesome pico de gallo de salsa I think you guys would love. And um, I left a message. This was uh, the next day at 6 p.m. I was parked on the city center and I got a call and the guy said, hey, this is Eric. Is this Maggie? And I said, yeah, he says, this is Whole Foods. We want to try your products? We heard about it. you. You want to know more? And I was like <laughs> freaking out.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and he said, uh, and I said, well, when do you guys meet? And I said, and he said, tomorrow at 9 a.m. So I literally come back to the little kitchen that I was renting and made salsa, packed it up, drove all night long to Maryland from West Virginia, came into this room. There was a big room, u U-shaped, U-shaped table with all these guys and walked in with my little skirt and my little heels and my little boxes also with chips on top, making the clicking sound of my heels. I remember it perfectly. And uh, I sat down and I passed the salsas and they opened the containers and they just started eating and all of a sudden Eric gets up and he says, these products are amazing. When, when can we have them? And I'm like, well, how much do you want? And he says, well, your first order is going to be 10,000 pounds of salsa. Oh, my God. <laughs> And I was freaking out because at that time I was making about 250 pounds for friends and selling it for $5 a pint. And, and I said, okay, let me just figure out how to do this and, and and I'll do it. But the thing with the issue that I was experiencing was that I had gone to to uh, banks and they wouldn't loan me money because I had nothing to show for. Yeah. And I, I just couldn't get help. So that was a big challenge for me. And I said, okay, what if I called Whole Foods? I wonder if they do something that they can guarantee that they'll mm-hmm. pay me. And they said, absolutely. Yeah, we'll do a contract. They did a contract. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I thought, okay, how much product do I need? Cost of goods. I need twenty thousand dollars for cost of goods. So I went to people who I knew that were my friends that had the funds, and I said, "Listen, look, they're gonna. I need twenty thousand dollars for cost of goods. They're gonna pay me every week, and mm-hmm. that by next week you'll have your twenty, and then I'll give you some more."
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: just, they said, "Sure." So it, the key, the week came about. I made all that. Also me and just one other person <laughs> it took us a whole week, mm-hmm. and Whole Foods paid me forty thousand dollars, and I gave back the twenty thousand dollars that year I made from making I went from making twelve thousand dollars a year to one point nine million dollars just with whole foods and Then what happened was God. that because I was in Whole Foods, now I had the status right Now yeah. I was getting calls from the other supermarkets, and that's really how the company grew. Yeah. So big, and it's because I didn't quit. I didn't, I almost felt like quitting, yeah, but I just kept figuring out a way, even if it was scary, even if I was going for the giant,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's you know, it's people often look at well, she's in 38 states and multi million dollar business and Whole Foods and, and Sam's Club, and you, you name it, and they they don't see how that can be them. And, you know, what I like about how you just described that was you were just kind of like instinctually going, well, I don't have money for cost of goods. Let me talk to Whole Foods. Oh, contract. Oh, you can do that? Great. Contract. Let me go talk to my friends and tell them that if I I have this contract, if they give me money, I'll pay them back in a certain amount of time. Plus, I'll give them a little extra, right? That's like a a, a, an investment opportunity, right? But yes. but right, these are there's structure to it, but you were just kind of kind of instinctually navigating how to make this work, right? and and that is really what it takes uh in in part, maybe in large part, to. Get to the 38 states to have a business, to operate a yes. business, to run a business. And certainly there's a lot of levels of sophistication that can come in to make it more efficient and operate at a higher yes. level and all those things, mm-hmm. right? But you can start with just kind of the basic step by step and kind of internally figuring it out, just figuring it the hell out to, to make it work, which is, you know, what mm-hmm. you did.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And, and so, uh, tell me then. I know there's a there's an exit. Um, you ultimately sell Maggie's. Talk a little bit about that.
1: So I met this company on a trade show, and I purposely got a table near them, <laughs> and I admired them. They were also another uh, cold cut, fresh salsa company that had grown like I had grown, and we became very good friends, and uh, we. Partnered up, and then we sold our companies. Our companies were sold together to Campbell Soup for two two hundred and thirty one million dollars in two
0: thousand fifteen. Amazing, Maggie! That's a hell of a <laughs> success story. That is a story. Look at you. I mean, uh, you're smiling. If people aren't watching, there, you know, I, I'm telling you, there's a beautiful smile on your face. And it is much deserved. It's really a remarkable story. I mean, to be in a world of the worst kind of abuse from childhood on. I mean, even that story with your dad. You know, at twenty-one years old, this is with only this is only a few years later uh, yes. that you then have that kind of a of a success. I just give you all the credit in the world. And I know that you are now using that success. Um yes. and, and and immediately after started to use that success, talk a little bit about kind of now what? What are you doing with all of this knowledge, this learning, this experience, the success that you've had?
1: Well, I wanna say right after my company sold the Campbells, I went back to Mexico and helped rescue 31 orphan children from a drug cartel and we provided a place and uh safety we involved the federales the military and i i've been giving so much uh even with my life i felt like i was gonna die when we were we had to be armed and and ready and it was so scary but it's something that I would do over again if it was, if it was to save a two or four-year-old kid that was in a situation like that. But uh, as a result of my success, what I do now is I'm a motivational speaker. So I've spoken all across the United States and in different countries. And I'm also an expert uh, business strategy a strategist. And I help entrepreneurs who want to Grow their businesses. I help them with mindset. I help them with tactics um, that I used to grow my multi-million-dollar business. So that's what I do now.
0: Yeah, and I know you're an author, um, yes. mindful success. Anything else that you want to kind of share with the audience about you know how you're working or where they can find you or any of that um, stuff because. Boy, you know, there's a lot of learning there that you've had and are sharing with others. And I know it's making a big difference for people.
1: Yes, absolutely. So you can find me at uh, maggiecook.com. And that's Maggie with one G. So M A G I E, cook.com. And it's my website, and everything's there that you need. Uh, if you need to, if you'd like to speak with me privately, you can go to meetmaggie.com and we can set up a call there
0: as well. Yeah. Great, Maggie. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Just really want to thank you for sharing this story and for being so courageous in not just your sharing, but in your life. And I really, really relate to your worldview. And it's um, wonderful to hear you share uh, that and know that you are sharing that that experience and, and belief system with others. Any final thoughts?
1: I just want to say that the fact that I'm speaking with you here today, I'm very joyful, extremely joyful and thankful for you that our paths crossed. And I want to just say that there are no accidents. There's a reason why we're here. And there are, for you who are the listener, there is not an accident for you either that you're here listening to us. And I hope that you can take whatever whatever you've learned here and apply it to your life and maybe share this um, story or this podcast with, with others so that they can inspire their lives to become better human beings.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well, I agree. And it's awesome to be connected with you. And um, yeah, thank you. Again, beautiful story. And uh, we'll be in touch. But thanks again, Maggie.
1: Sounds great. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.